This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Better Reading acknowledges the traditional custodians on whose land our office stands, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation and their elders past, present and emerging. I'm Cheryl Arkell from Better Reading. The idea for this podcast came to me from trying to find books to read to my great-nephews. As regular listeners know, I'm from a Lebanese background, and to my surprise, it was difficult finding books where I felt that they could see themselves in the story. It got me thinking about how many Australians must feel like this. Why is there still a lack of diversity in children's books? Why? Late in 2019, Better Reading was awarded a grant from the Copyright Agency to produce a six-part series on diversity in children's writing. At the time, we could not have predicted what 2020 would bring. I now understand more than ever how little I know and how important these conversations are. This series by no means contains all the answers, but I hope it opens up more conversations. I personally have learned a great deal talking to these guests. At times, it was uncomfortable. At times, I wasn't quite sure what I meant or was saying. Afterwards, I've taken the time to reflect on many of the issues my guests discussed. I look forward to learning more. I hope you enjoy our conversation on diversity in children's writing. Dr. Randa Abdel Fattah, welcome to Better Reading. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really so excited to have you here, <laughs> a person of your stature. We've written a little biog about you, but we haven't even captured maybe 20% of your life. But anyway, hopefully that will come out in the uh, podcast. Really, I'm feeling honoured and flattered to be speaking with you today. Oh, so, thank you. Rhonda is a postdoctoral research fellow in the Department of Sociology at Macquarie University, a prominent Australian-Palestinian advocate and a multi-award winning author of 11 books for children and young adults. Her books deal with intercultural relations, migration, race, religious issues in Australia, identity, belonging and political consciousness among young Australians, both Muslim and non-Muslim. Her best-selling debut novel, Does My Head Look Big in This, has sold more than 100,000 copies in Australia, is published around the world and has been adapted into a play. Her novel, Where the Streets Had a Name, won Australia's Gold Inky Awards in 2009, an international award for teenage literature. Rhonda regularly speaks at schools around the world, promoting awareness about diversity and social justice. Wow, I've already got goosebumps. (laughs) So I guess this is timely. We got some very generous funding to produce these podcasts from the Copyright Agency, and we received this funding last year. Um, And now we've moved into another world of conversation around Black Lives Matters. So there's so much to talk about here. So what I'm going to try and do is stay on topic, right, and let's see how we go. Firstly, I want you to tell me a little bit about your backstory and how you came to be a writer. I remember the very day that Does My Head Look Big in This came out. It shocked me to my core that somebody could write such a beautiful story about what I thought back then was a contentious subject. 
Yeah, well, that book was um, something that was in the making since I was a teenager. And I've told this story a lot that I started the first draft when I was 16. So I wrote the full first draft when I was in year nine. And it was very much inspired and motivated by my own experiences, my lived experiences growing up as an Australian Egyptian, Muslim, Palestinian at the time of the Gulf War, experiencing what it felt like to be marginalised, to be excluded, to be made to feel like a problem in Australian society, to have my loyalties and sense of identity constantly questioned. And on top of that, the stereotypes of being a Muslim woman and all of the the misconceptions around what hijab meant to me and, and speaking for me and about and over me. So it really came out of um, an adolescent need to speak my own truth and to speak back to racism. Uh, And then, um, you know, I rewrote it after it was rightly rejected for being too didactic as a teenage story. And I wrote it post 9-11. And so it really did again bring into the story and the conversation that I was trying to open with my readers what it feels like to grow up in the shadow of the war on terror as a young Australian Muslim. And so it was a story that I feel it's very bittersweet that the story is even more resonant today. And and I'll tell you why, because we adapted it as a feature film about four years ago and we've been rewriting the draft of that script and we had to actually intensify and escalate the Islamophobic and racist environment in which the main character is growing up. What we had to do was almost create a film that was based on Does My Head Look Big In This? And then my last novel, When Michael Met Mina, which was is set in 2016 and is about the, the rise of white supremacy and Reclaim Australia and, and the normalisation of this hate speech. And we almost had to bring these two sort of bookends of my writing career together, which for me was bittersweet. I would have thought that in 20, 2016, 2020, a story like Does My Head Look Begin This isn't needed. And in fact, I had to intensify and escalate the racist environment in which the main characters growing up? I'm from a Lebanese-Australian background. My parents were born in Lebanon in in a place called Sarte and I grew up here in Sydney. I was born here. But around that time that you just made reference to, around the time of 9-11, I experienced dreadful racism in this country. I was petrified every morning of waking up and hearing another news story Mm. about some kind of violence inflicted by what they were calling then extreme um, Muslims at the time. And do you know when I would hear somebody like a mass shooting in the US and I'd find out that it was a white person who, who shot and committed this terrible atrocity, there would be a sense of relief that it wasn't a Muslim person or an Arab person, which I so identify with. But what I started seeing back then, and I still see, is that Arab, and particularly Muslim Arab, became the bad guys in everything we read and in everything we watched. And years ago, they used to be the Russians. Mm. Have you observed that? Well, yeah, I've been in sort of in this anti-racism activism space for a long time now. Really, when I was working at the Islamic Council of Victoria in the late 90s, early 2000s, I was at at university and I was doing media work there. And I still have, I actually dug them up the other day, the campaigns that we were running against movies like True Lies, um, against uh, Aladdin, you know, Disney's other, the 
sort of Orientalist tropes and sort of racist imagery that was being perpetuated constantly in Hollywood and in popular fiction. If it wasn't a Muslim male who was a terrorist, the Muslim woman was either desperately in need of being rescued by a white saviour or else achieve liberation by abandoning her culture and religion. So it's not something that that hasn't emerged post 9-11 in terms of Arab and, and Muslim. But, you know, I have been learning about racism and Islamophobia in an academic setting since 2012. And I have also learned to understand what we are up against in a different way. I've learned to engage with it and fight it in a different way. And I think the best way that you can fight Islamophobia and racism is not to look at it as a problem of how do we address racism for Muslims or Arabs, but to go back to the basics, which is what is this country? What is this country established on? It's established on stolen land. Um, It is based on the disavowal of Indigenous sovereignty, as Aileen Morton Robinson, um, Indigenous academic, has written. Um, And so the idea that that you can fight Islamophobian racism without understanding the foundational injustice on which Australia is founded, for me, that is key. And it helps me understand and navigate how we fight racism and and address whiteness in this country. And that's what I've tried to do with my writing now, even more so to really take on what whiteness means in Australia and how it manages the so-called multiculturalism space, but always from the point of view that it, it denies Indigenous sovereignty and ownership. Mm. So how do we convey that to children and where does it start? Well, I think, you know, you opened this by talking about how... Um, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement has started this conversation is starting to happen. And for me, it's it's a conversation that's been happening for a long time. It's just that people now, because of the impact of social media and the fact that you can't turn away, the demand to take this injustice and to look it in the face and deal with it is louder and we are getting, you know, more exposure of what is happening. I don't think anybody can pretend not to have known about this, these sorts of injustices throughout this entire period. It's just that there is more exposure of it now and there seems to be a new awakening. How that translates into allyship and, and action is another question. For me, having literature that not only speaks to young readers who aren't white, who aren't part of the majority, gives them something to celebrate about their own identities. In some cases, to introduce them to their own identities, because we seem to think, and I say this as a mother now of four children, we seem to think, I'm second generation, that just because my child is growing up as an Australian-born Palestinian Muslim, that they are going to suddenly connect with that culture and faith. I have to do a lot of work myself because especially my Arabic skills aren't the same as my parents. I have to do a lot of work to embed that culture into their life. They don't just wake up and suddenly they understand what it means to be Palestinian or Muslim. So I need also to have books that I can give them written by Australians that celebrate who they are, who mirror their experiences. At the same time, we need books of resistance that speak back to racism. So I see that books serve two purposes. You can either be speaking back to racism and educating readers about multicultural experiences, about race, about anti-racism, about acceptance and self-acceptance, acceptance of difference and self-acceptance, and then books which give validity to young people's experiences and identities and also give them something to share in and and celebrate their own lives. So stories with diverse themes like race, like LGBT issues, 
we all understand that these are important for children, as we were saying, it's a sense of identity. But isn't it also important that these stories help develop empathy for, let's say, non-Indigenous children or non-children from a different background? Isn't it that we all have to read those stories? Absolutely. I think as a writer, I am very conscious about questions of privilege, about questions of who am I writing for? Who is my audience? What is my purpose? I am very much, because of my identities, very much conscious of the double bind because we are living in a world and a society which presumes that whiteness is the universal. And so everything is always held accountable to that yardstick. You're either speaking against a white yardstick, so you're pushing back, or you're speaking from the margins to your own audiences. And that presents a real double bind. Sometimes I just want to write a book that is about Muslim or Arab identities, a book that's rooted in that sort of a culture. But I I don't have the freedom or luxury to think that my writing comes from a space of neutrality because whiteness is presumed to be universal. So it will either be interpreted as how will the white majority read this? Will they understand that this is one story of many, many stories or will they see this as the definitive story about Arab and Muslim identities? That's something you're always negotiating as a writer who writes outside the white mainstream. Often we just want the freedom to be able to to tell our stories without the burden of representation. So there are many layers to writing in this space when you don't come from the white majority that you really grapple with as a writer. I think, though, that the time has come beyond asking should we have more diversity. I'm angry and I'm impatient and I'm actually quite sick of it because it's something I see as a writer in this space, in the Australian literary space and children's book and YA space, but also as an academic, I have researched what books are on curriculum, what books are being exposed to children in schools. So I can give you one example. In the English K-10 New South Wales syllabus, there's a comprehensive list of suggested texts. There are three texts in that comprehensive list with Afghan characters. Now, two of those stories, Soraya the Storyteller and Taj and the Great Camel Trek, are actually written by white women. Then you have a third, Parvana, which is written by another white author. What adds insult to injury about this? And this is not a statement about the quality of those books or the. I'm not making a comment about the authors themselves. I'm talking about race and power here and power relations. I'm talking about something that's structural. Couldn't care less about individuals. I'm talking about the structural implications of this. What adds insult to injury is that these texts are explicitly mapped onto the syllabus goals of insights about the peoples and cultures of Asia, intercultural experiences. Those are specific goals of the curriculum. So what does that say? That you can't even have Asian writers writing about the insight about peoples and cultures of Asia, that it needs to be mediated through white writers. This is something that slips under the radar. It's just something that you see in curriculum. It doesn't have the sexy, glossy sort of headlines about what race means in Australian curriculums. But I find it so problematic that these sorts of things are happening at the level of curriculum formulation and they don't address how it erases and renders invisible non-white writers. It deprives marginalised communities of telling their own stories and also of the capital, the economic and cultural capital to, to be able to have their stories taught in schools. So for me, that's really problematic. And I can honestly give you so many examples if we're going to talk about diversity where 
curriculum, English curriculums in Australia are extremely problematic in that sense. And that's really upsetting because that's where the change needs to happen. So growing up, and you'll have a memory of this, you were a lot younger than me, but I grew up in a city in Glebe and I was reading Charlotte's Web and I was reading Anne of Green Gables and everything else. But when I finally found the first book that I connected with, and that was Looking for Alibrandi, I was moved beyond I couldn't believe that there was somebody like me in a book I felt that I was Josie right yeah and that book did so well then you look at your book does my head look big in this and that did so well and then you look at Christos Chalkos's Loaded but there are only handfuls of books it's not that there's not a market for them Yeah, absolutely. I think that when you look at these questions, there's always, we're up against what we see as, and teachers and like teacher librarians are always telling me they want these sorts of books. They want to be able to hand that book to somebody in their classrooms, in the library. I think there's so many factors at play here. There's the, um, there's publishers and publishers taking a risk, publishers sometimes having to consciously make these sorts of commitments to platforming and privileging well-written stories by people of colour, by marginalised communities, and giving them the same sort of publicity attention that other white writers get. There's also how going into teaching courses and actually engaging the teachers of tomorrow, the teachers who are being trained to go out into classrooms to actively look for these books, to actively platform these books in their classrooms and libraries. And I think that there's just so many factors at play here because there is a demand for these sorts of stories. And ultimately what we need is is to engage teachers and people who are writing curriculum and publishers and reviewers to give these sorts of books the attention that they deserve. So if you had tips for young writers like yourself, what would it be? I think that for me, I've never taken a writing course. For me, my writing course has always been being an avid reader. Uh, you know, you absorb so much of, I've learned so much about the craft of writing by being interested in the way that sentences are structured in a book, in the way that other writers have written. So for me, my classroom has been my library, the books that I've read and are still reading. I think that writing is like a muscle. You have to keep working at it and you have to train it. And so you have to keep on writing. Sometimes you can get really rusty. At the moment, I have severe writer's block because it's been a while since I've written creatively and I need to write creatively. When I'm cranky, when I'm feeling down about the world, it's usually going back to my writing. That is cathartic for me. It's therapeutic. And I think that writing is something you have to constantly do and you get better at it when you do it. Another thing is to seek feedback. It's good to seek feedback from your family, but usually they'll be very kind to you. Find someone who can give you that constructive feedback and understand, especially for young writers, and I say this again as a mum of two young teenagers who hate editing, you've got to edit because the best writing comes out in the the editing process and polishing that work that you've done over and over again. As established writers, we spend about a year redrafting our manuscripts so if you have to go and rewrite your story three or four times there's not too much to ask. So if you were giving a tip to an established writer now and they've been living in these tumultuous weeks and they've decided okay I've had enough too I should be writing more about diversity in the fiction I write or in the non-fiction I write and I'm a white writer let's say what advice would you give those people? Um, I kind of feel it's the wrong question. 
I'm not really interested anymore in what right writers need or want to do, what I need them to do in this time where racism and Islamophobia are killing my community, are killing black people, are killing Indigenous people, is to make space, is to take a step back sometimes and think, do I need to write this? Do I need to take that space? Or can I use my privilege? Can I use my my um, leg up to give space to others, to seed space, to to the marginalised? Can I amplify other voices? If I'm a white publisher, if I'm a white editor, do I need to publish a white person commenting about racism or should I actively go and find the countless Indigenous black people of colour who are writing about this, who have written about this ad nauseum? I think for me that's the more, that's where I'm putting my energy rather than counselling white people about what makes them feel better in terms of their writing careers. Sometimes there are moments when people need to take a step back and you know what, then they're going to meet us because we're, we've taken a step back, we're, we're being held back so often and I think that it's time that we amplify the voices of people who can really write about these issues and it's about time. Again, you know, I look at the Premier's Readers Challenge lists and it makes me so sad. I think Australia is so far behind when it comes to books and literature that explicitly address questions of race and anti-racism and multiculturalism. The US and the UK are far ahead. That's not to say that doing that is going to magically solve the problem of race because race and racism and prejudice are two different things. There are structural issues at play here, but what we want is to build a critical mass of people who understand the costs of racism and prejudice, who understand how they are implicated and how, therefore, they can join the movement to eradicate and challenge racism. And to do that, you need to start young. You need to expose children to these issues and themes at a young age. Everything is a teachable moment. I know this because I have a 14 and 11, a 3-year-old and a 6-year-old. And my 6-year-old will not pick up a book unless it's going to make him laugh. He's just full of beans, full of energy. So I know firsthand the kind of book that's going to engage him. But I want to channel that and harness his energy and his desire to do good into something that's relevant today. And I want a book that speaks to that, that teaches him about anti-racism. Unfortunately, there's not that much in Australia that does that. So we have a lot of work to do. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. How do we get more writers of colour published? I, I don't think quotas is the answer. It's very tricky and messy. I think a case can be made for quotas, but what I would be more interested in asking is when a publisher is confronted with some stories and the potential for publishing, they should be asking the question, why do I have so many white writers 
on my list? Should this white writer be given this platform and privilege? Or uh, can I actively look in that pile for a person of colour who has the quality and they often do. I mean, there's this, this assumption that if you're a person of colour, if you're a marginalised group, suddenly the question of quality and merit comes into it, which I think is just uh, a deflection from the question of privilege because the quality and merit is there. It's about strategy. It's about making conscious decisions that give space to these marginalised voices, using your manoeuvres as a publisher to create opportunities for people of colour to submit work. I think it's about all these factors ultimately consciously engaged publishers doing this sort of active investment in trying to find people of colour rather than strictly having quotas, for example, and also being questioning why do I have so many white writers on my list? Surely not every children's story or young adult story or adult story is written by a a white writer. What am I doing? Uh, What can I do to increase the numbers of people of colour in my publishing list? How did you get published? I got published by first getting an agent at that time in 2004 was extremely difficult. You know, I went basically and looked up books on which listed all the agents in Australia and New Zealand. And this was pre-social media, of course, and basically sent my manuscript out to all of them. I had some pretty ridiculous encounters there. One agent asked me if there was an honour killing in my book as though that would somehow make the book more likely to sell. And it was a lucky last agent that I sent my work to, Sheila Drummond, who sadly passed away at the beginning of this year, who took a punt with my book and stayed with me um, up until her death. She was an amazing champion. And she's an example of the kind of person in the industry who was proactive, who understood what I was trying to do. She was always out there looking for ways to really find opportunities. And she was a real champion of the kind of commitment that I was interested in making with my writing. So you've said we are at almost every point of our day immersed in cultural diversity, faces, clothes, smells, attitudes, values, traditions, behaviours, beliefs, rituals. It's so true. So why are we still struggling with this topic? Because whiteness is stubborn and race is stubborn. And in Australia in particular, when you look at our popular culture, when you look at our cultural output, there is still a staggering, staggering erasure and denial of the multicultural nature of this country, let alone the denial of Indigenous sovereignty. So I think what we're up against is whiteness, the fact that whiteness is so deluded into thinking that it is so important. And, you know, when you turn on the television, when you turn on, when you look at sort of debates around writers' rooms in in Australian film and television, and I know this firsthand because of my screenwriting experience with Does My Head Look Big in this, it is still an extremely white industry that has failed, failed miserably to reflect the reality of our extremely diverse society. And so I think it comes down to the stubbornness of whiteness to give up, to cede power and and space and to understand that it is not so relevant, it is not so interesting. And I can't tell you, I don't watch Australian television or Australian film anymore. I just, I, I hardly have ever because I just find it so boring. It's not reflect my life, doesn't reflect the lives of those around me. It's just a tale about usually white men or white women. The same kind of stories repeated ad nauseum. So it's irrelevance is embarrassing. And I think that it's just us constantly having to push back against it. It becomes very exhausting. But luckily for the next generation, 
uh, getting stronger and, and louder and less willing to take this. And hopefully that, that's the, the change that we will see. I really hope, uh, we've been recording these podcasts over the last two weeks and I've got to tell you, I have learned so much just in that time. And I really hope people think about this and take away what they can from these podcasts. But the biggest learning I've had here is that we just need to find those manuscripts, find those people and start listening, don't we? Yeah. And it's not that hard. Of and course it's not that they're there. No, it's there, isn't it? it? The stories are there. Absolutely. I mean, like I'm speaking here from an Australian Muslim Arab perspective. These are conscious decisions. These aren't just, um, it's not that white spaces and, and white gatekeepers are overlooking. It's conscious decisions here. Syllabus and curriculum from K to 10, there are only two texts authored by Muslims. There are no graphic novels, no poems, no films, picture books composed by Muslims or even with a specific Muslim story. And I know this because of the two, I am one of the two. And then the other one is a memoir by um, Arwa al-Mazri. And for me, that's, it's more than a blind spot. It's a conscious decision that in the context of the war on terror, in the context of the, what we know from statistics that Muslims are one of the most hated groups in Australia, within that context, you have people who have sat around a, a room and crafted a curriculum and ignored those social facts, those realities, and still failed to craft an education system that addresses these real-life issues. And they are real-life. Racism kills. And that's why Black Lives Matter is so important for us to understand that it's not something that you do on social media with a tweet and then you go back to your classroom or you go back to your publishing house and it's business as usual. You need to translate that activism that you're doing online so that it doesn't just become virtual signaling, it's actually embedded into your practice. And that's why you can probably hear my frustration and the frustration of other people of colour, because we're sick of conversations, we're sick of debates, we're sick of being interviewed about these topics, and the people with the power to make change pat themselves on the back but don't do anything about it. Because ultimately we can constantly scream out about this, but ultimately we don't have the power as gatekeepers of these white corridors of power to make those changes. It's up to people who actually are saying that they believe in our stories, not just to profit from them, to actually translate that into action. Mm. It's time, isn't it? So what are you doing? Are you writing? What's your next step? What's happening in your life? I mean, fortune, yeah. I gather, is uh, is one of those aspects. Yeah, there, there's a lot to juggle there. Yeah. <laughs> um, I can't function without juggling a lot of things. I, I need to be busy, I think, because I need to be doing something to feel that I'm, I'm at least trying to make a difference. So I've got my academic work. I just finished my a non-fiction book based on interviews with young people in Sydney schools, which is called Growing Up in the Age of Terror. That's coming out next year and that looks at what it's been like for young people who were born around 9-11 to have grown up in that environment, Muslim and non-Muslim, comparing that experience. And I'm also finalising the script of Does My Head Look Big In This? and then beating my head against a brick wall when it comes to the Australian film industry, trying to get that made. <laughs> I'm looking into writing a children's book series which is explicitly addressing these themes of anti-racism. It becomes exhausting having to do these things and, and feel that nothing changes. But ultimately I'm an optimist. It's the thing that keeps me going, so we just got to keep doing the work. We do have to keep doing the work. Arunda, thank you so much for your time. It's been an absolute pleasure and privilege. Thank you so much for having me. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. 
Belinda audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere. Or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBookstore. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library, and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow, and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.